Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Neil Guthrie about writing legal memos. Neil's the Director of Professional Development Research and Knowledge Management at Aird and Burles in Toronto, a former practicing lawyer, legal research and writing instructor, and the author of the popular legal writing text, Guthrie's Guide to Better Legal Writing. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Neil. Thank you, Shelley. Well, thanks so much for being here. As lawyers, we write and read so many memos. And I think that after a while, we develop a kind of an intuitive feel for what works and what doesn't. But articulating that can be a bit challenging. So I thought we could start our discussion by hearing from you, what distinguishes a good memo from a great one? How would you articulate the differences? Um, I was thinking about this before uh, this interview. You were kind enough to give me some talking points. Uh, A good memo tells me the answer. A great memo uh, tells me the answer, but it also explains to me not just the, the analysis that went into that answer, but how you got to it, like the, the methodology by which you arrived at the answer. Um, a great memo probably will tell me on page one everything I need to know. Um, it will tell me succinctly what the facts at issue are, what the issues are. It will tell me the brief conclusions. And I can look at page one and then say, yeah, sounds right to me. I can leave this and go off and do something else, come back to it, or it will raise a red flag to me and I'll say, no, I think I better read this one because it's not what I was expecting. Mm. Um, So a great memo will have that kind of executive summary on the first page or page and a half. Um, A great memo will also, as I said, explain why it is you're telling me what you're telling me. Um, Often what I see with student memos is here's this great case that supports the conclusion I've reached. But as my friend Angela Swan says, you can find a case that will tell you, that will say anything. Um, (laughs) It it really, in a great memo, you're telling me why you're using this case, why it's better than any other case, or maybe that it's the only case, and here's why you've concluded it's the only case. Um, You know, it isn't just case conclusion, it's, an explanation of how you actually got there. A great memo will obviously also be beautifully written, uh, which is something that you know often doesn't happen because most of the time the writer of the memo has a tight deadline, doesn't have access to all the resources um, that they need, uh, you know, is operating somewhat in the dark because lawyers often give instructions that are um, medium at best, I would say poor often, uh, or the lawyer will tell you, tell the student to research something, but kind of in a vacuum uh, without a lot, without enough of the context. Um, it really isn't helpful to say, I need a, a memo about this issue without understanding what the issue actually involves and what the consequences are and why it's important. Um, mm-hmm. So often I see memos where students have no context and they can't really provide a useful answer. Um, so that's not going to be a great memo. That's going to be a sort of okay memo. 
Right. Now, how I'm just on that point of getting clear instructions, if a lawyer hasn't given clear instructions, um, well, how I mean, even how would someone know they haven't got clear enough instructions and how could they go get clearer instructions? Uh, it's a challenge because sometimes you don't really have the opportunity to go back for clarification. What I always suggest is once you've, and this is more a point for students, is when you're getting instructions on the memo, write everything down, always take a piece of paper with you. Um, but before you start working on it, clarify and, and confirm what the instructions actually are. The best way of doing it is just with a quick email saying, here's what you've asked me to look at these three issues and, and you describe them. And if you've got something wrong in the translation, you can clear that up at the start rather than at the end when it's not very helpful to, to realize that you've gone down the wrong path with something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then it puts it in the, uh, the instructing lawyer's court to say, you know, you got it or you didn't. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I like that. I like that. And just going back to um, something you said at the beginning, I got the sense that maybe there are different types of memos. Um, I think we all have a sense of what a memo is, but are there different types of legal memos that um, junior lawyers might write? And, and if so, what are the sort of, what are the different types that we would write and why might we, we write a memo versus something, some other type of document? Right. Um, there are distinctions in a way, but I don't like to get too um, wrapped up in form. It's really content and function that drive it. Um, a client once said when we sent a memo, oh, I didn't think that was the formal legal opinion because it wasn't in the form of a letter. Like, well, it's still it's still legal advice, and you know, it, it really doesn't matter whether it's a letter or a memo. Um, a a one-line email can be legal advice. Uh, right. My yeah, my my favorite was Rocky. Yes, the sale of goods act applies to livestock. Period. <laughs> um, and it does. Uh, so memos can be kind of what you want them to be, but they do have some distinct functions, I think. Uh, one thing that's useful to remember, and I'm choosing that word deliberately, is what memorandum means. It's Latin for, it is to be remembered that. Mm. So one function of a memo is to, to tell someone kind of what they already know or already should know, but maybe don't, um, but also memorializing the whole process of here's the question, here's the the thinking and the analysis, and here's the conclusion, so that you have that documented. A lot of the function of a memo is to document. Um, so another, yeah. it's kind of like a memorial, um, which goes back to the, the memorandum term. Memos can also uh, end up with strange afterlives. <laughs> um, you know, the, the memo that you write could be used as the, the talking points or the script for the more senior person you're working with to talk to the client about. It could go directly to the client. It could be repurposed into an article with the confidential information removed. It could also um, end up being used 10 years down the road. So you have to sort of think of posterity. Um, if you're in any kind of institutional setting, 
you probably have some kind of memo database or memo bank. It used to be a filing cabinet. Uh, and, and the purpose there is partly so that every time you get the same question, and the same questions do arise all the time, you can go back and not have to reinvent the wheel, so it's an efficiency tool, mm -hmm. but you also guard against the, the risk of giving inconsistent advice on the same point at different times. So if you've got one sort of standard document to work from, you can minimize the risk of one person saying one thing to a client and the other person saying something totally different. Um, right. So there, there are various purposes to a memo. Right. And then it gets me thinking about audience because you've already identified a few different potential audiences and time periods that someone might be reviewing or, or um, using the memo that you've written. So are there any sort of writing choices that um, can help guide the writer when they're writing to multiple audiences, some of which they have no idea about when they're writing? Uh, try to think who your audiences could be. Um, you can't predict that always because you don't really know. But the best piece of advice is keep it simple and write in clear, correct, plain English, not in legalese. Um, when people say, that looks like it was written by a lawyer, it's not generally regarded as a compliment. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've got to think, is this going to go to a client? In which case, is that client an in-house lawyer at our client? Um, then a fair amount of legal stuff is fine. But the in-house lawyer may have to share the memo with the people in the business units um, that they support, in which case, a lot of legal terminology is really not helpful. Uh, if your client is unsophisticated, first language, not English, not highly educated, you know, any number of factors, you'll need to think about making it simple and straightforward. I actually tell students, sometimes what you want to do is write two versions of the memo. You write the detailed technical one with all the footnotes that you keep for internal purposes, and then you do a one-page summary for the client because that's really all they want to know is what's the answer, mm -hmm. um, especially if it's a business person. Mm -hmm. Like that uh, that quick sort of snapshot that you were talking about, trying to get the sort of the essential information on page one. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and put it in in plain, simple terms. Um, you know, all of your readers will be grateful for that. Uh, the thing that I I try to stress is don't use Latin don't use technical terms, or if you have to use a technical term that's you know, not obvious or well-known, use it once, provide a translation or an explanation and try to avoid it ever afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can't, um, and you, you just have to sort of make the best of it with that, but um, keep it simple. Yeah, and I, I've also, I mean, the idea of plain language, I think for some people it mean, can mean some very different things. I think a lot of people just focus in on language choices. But one of the things that um, I think it's important to think about in terms of playing language is structure as well. Like how you go about structuring something so it's simple and easy to navigate through it. Um, and I'm just wondering in terms of a memo where you have already pretty well-defined sections, 
is there anything else that we can do to help, um, you know, make it a little bit more accessible? We have those big sections, you know, facts, issues, uh, discussion or analysis. And some of those, sec- particularly the discussion analysis section can be quite long. Is there a way to kind of make that a little bit more accessible to all readers? There is. Uh, what I recommend is using lots of section headings and subsections, keep them short, but the headings are helpful because, well, they help the reader understand where everything's going and the reader can say, oh, okay, we're dealing with the contract issue now. And then when you reach the end of that section, ideally you'll have some kind of transition that says, and now we'll move on to the other issue, whatever it is. Um, So that's helpful. But I think the sections or the, the subsections actually help the writer as well. Um, when you're sitting down at the, a blank screen, a really effective way to kind of get things moving is to say, okay, I know I have four issues. Just put the headings onto the screen and then fill in the easy one first hmm. or you know, write the facts because you know those and you don't really have to think about them as much. Although you should think about them because there may be things that you need to sort of finesse. But if you lay out the general structure Um, you can then fill in the details. And once you start filling it in, the more your brain starts working and the more difficult things sort of are percolating without you realizing it. And they may become easier to, to think about. And I think the other beauty of that approach is you can always rearrange the sections. And Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a good sign if you realize, Oh, wait a minute, the answer to issue one actually depends on the answer to issue three. So I need to restructure things. Mm -hmm. Um, One writing instructor I uh, had as an articling student many years ago said, you know, her approach was to just put a whole bunch of post-it notes on the wall and Mm -hmm. then rearrange them as required. The more things change as you write in terms of your thinking, the better, because it means you're actually engaging with the law and the, the analysis. Um, so that I think is one helpful tool. Yeah. Super um, helpful. The yeah, other sorry, thing, <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I think is helpful for a reader is break things up. Um, sections, dividing it into sections breaks it up visually as well as conceptually. Um, and things like bullet points, numbered lists, diagrams, pictures, they really help because the last thing anyone wants to see is a solid block of text with very narrow margins. Um, Particularly if your reader is looking at what you're writing on a tiny screen. Um, I I often get emails that freak me out because they look like this horrible, solid, you know, mass of text on the screen. And then when I get back to the office and look at them on my computer, it actually looks way less scary because everything's stretched out, there's more space in between, and it's actually less anxiety inducing. So think about how your document actually looks. Um, One of my favorite books, and I have it actually on my dining room table as I'm speaking, (laughs) is a book by a guy called Matthew Butterick, Typography for Lawyers. It's fantastic. And he talks about things like font choice, um, and font choices have been in the news lately. Yes. Um, um, (laughs) We can talk about that. But also (laughs) things like how to make your document look professional, how 
the choices you make visually can make it persuasive or not persuasive and mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of interesting stuff like that. So, you know, you didn't probably go to law school thinking you'd be end, end up being a graphic designer, but there's definitely an element of that in memo writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a good point. And when you're talking about diagrams and pictures and things, I mean, I just never like back in the day when I was writing memos, it was just pure, just blocks and blocks of text. So that's acceptable to include diagrams and, and images and things like that in a memo? I think so. And judges have told me they love it in in documents that are filed for, for court proceedings because you can make a much more compelling point by showing a photograph of the car accident than a three paragraph description of the car accident, or you could do a bit of both. Right. But um, yeah, it's very effective. And just breaking up the text is also helpful for the eye. Um, one thing that Butterick talks about in his book is if you're, if you feel the need to quote a large excerpt from a case or, a, or anything really, don't assume that anyone will ever read it. <laughs> the reader will look at it and just sort of go, oh, skip that over. Your eye just wants to skip it over. So his advice is actually don't quote big blocks of text. Um, or if you have to explain what they say and then quote them. But he says it's much better just to paraphrase or quote a short excerpt. Uh, right. And yeah. So what would you say to a student who or a junior lawyer who doesn't have the confidence to paraphrase? I guess I've just heard that so often. Should I put the whole quote in because I just want to make sure that I don't, um, you know, I, I don't misquote it or I don't get something wrong? Um, paraphrasing. Any tips on how to paraphrase effectively or with confidence, I guess? I, I think there's actually greater risk in just quoting because the I think what that signals is I don't, I haven't thought about this enough to explain this point. So I'm just going to surrender and let somebody else do it for me. Hmm. Um, so you should paraphrase uh, because that will show that you actually understand it. Um, mm -hmm. There's nothing worse in a memo than someone who states a legal principle and then just cites a single case name as authority or provides a quotation from that case and leaves it at that. That really isn't telling me anything. It's just, okay, you found this case in a book or online and it's kind of relevant, but you're not really telling me how or why. Mm -hmm. um, so you should paraphrase. And it, I agree, it does take a certain amount of confidence, but you know that's what you're getting paid to do. <laughs> yeah, and any tips on how to, how to become a better paraphraser? <laughs> like, I don't know. I've heard things like read something, then put it aside, and then you know try to write it out in your own words. Um, any any other suggestions? Um, I think that could be effective. Uh, one um, one I think one good piece of advice is read it aloud and see if that helps you understand what's going on. Especially, I think this happens a lot with when you're quoting um, historic material it may take you a while just to understand language that we don't currently use or don't use quite as much or quite in the same way. Um, but stepping away from it and coming back is a good strategy. I think that's a good strategy with memo writing for other reasons. Um, certainly when you're editing and proofreading, um, go away from it 
have a good night's sleep, come back to it. Not all, mm-hmm. not you don't have the luxury of being able to do that all the time, but it it's always beneficial. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, one, I guess, piece of advice that applies across the board is don't submit a first draft. Never. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are times though when you don't have any choice. Um, so what I I tell people is if you are under the gun, make it clear in the memo that you were under the gun, Mm. Um, you know, and you can do it in fairly subtle ways, you know, in the interests of time or given the time constraints, I was unable to whatever, but that signals to, especially someone who's reading it later on, like two years later, okay, this was a rush job. It's, Mm. you know, it may be okay, but don't count on it. Um, but it also reminds the person who asked you to write the memo that it may not be the the best piece of work you've ever been able to produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good advice. Um, yeah, again, it's just being honest, right? I think oftentimes young lawyers and students are they're trying to give the impression that they've gone above and beyond um, with everything that they do, and I mean, you, you just can't. Uh, so to sort of identify the limitations or you know things that you weren't able to look at whatever and just be honest about it um yeah the the flip side of that advice is often you will be instructed by the lawyer the more senior person not to you know do a thorough search you should definitely flag that too you have asked me to look only at ontario cases or you have not, you have asked me not to consider these issues, um, partly for posterity and a reader 10 years down the road, but also because what I have seen um, is lawyers who forget that they said, don't look at the contract issue, just focus on the tort question. And then three months later, they'll say, why didn't you look at the tort question? (laughs) Uh, So if it says in in the memo, you have asked me not to look at the tort question, you're just reminding, and we go back to memorandum. Yeah. To be remembered that. Yeah. Great point. Great point. And actually, that brings me to um, the individual parts of the memo. Um, we sort of, I think we all have a general idea of the, the main parts, but maybe if you could go through each of the parts and what are some of the challenges in writing each of the sections and do you have any tips to help deal with those challenges? Yeah. Um, There is a sort of general consensus as far as the memos I've seen in a variety of settings about the component parts. Um, Start with, I think some kind of introduction, just explaining what the purpose of it is. You have asked me to consider issues related to X. And then typically you're going to start with the facts that underlie the question. Sometimes you'll be dealing with one of those research in the abstract with no facts, in which case there won't be any facts, but, you know, at least you'll explain what the background is. Um, When you're dealing with the facts, think about what facts are relevant and which facts are not, and obviously weed out the extraneous stuff, but be careful because sometimes what's well as judges have often said 90 percent of the time the law is driven by the facts not by the law the result Mm -hmm. is driven by the the facts so 
really make sure you're focusing on what's important. You'll probably need to think about facts you don't have um, and state what those are, because that could change the analysis dramatically. Hmm. Uh, you might want to, and the example I often give is the copy of the contract you have asked me to review was not executed. Um, I'm going to assume for the purposes of this memorandum that the client did in fact sign the contract. Hmm. That's a way of flagging a potential issue. Maybe the client didn't sign the contract, but parking it. Um, right. So at least you've raised the issue and you can just move along with what you think your, your, your purpose is in writing the memo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the next section I like to see is the issues. Uh, okay. So can I just jump in for a second? Yeah, sure. And talking about the uh, the facts, how do you determine if something is relevant? <laughs> or, <laughs> Well, sometimes it's because somebody has told you here are the relevant facts. Uh, that's the easy answer. Uh, I think it may in fact be that you have to go back once you've thought about things more to assess what really is a relevant fact and what's not relevant. Um, you won't entirely know until you've really thought through the issues because if you're really engaging with the law and the cases, you'll come to realize that, oh, wait a minute, this factual point actually made this case go one way and in another case, because the facts were slightly different, it went the opposite way. I wonder what are my facts on this one? And you go back and you think, oh, wait a minute, we're more in category B than category A. Mm -hmm. So think about the facts as you go along and if things need to change, um, you won't always know upfront what the relevant facts are. You may realize later on, oh, it's probably important to know X and then go back and check your notes. Right, right. And you and may have to go back to the client and say, look, we don't know this fact, but it's important. Can you tell us? Right, right. And then how do you decide how to present the facts or organize the facts? Like, is it always chronological or how, how, do, you, how do you set them out? It's probably usually chronological, um, especially if, if you're dealing with a litigation matter you want to tell a little bit of a story probably uh, because that you'll need to know why the facts lead to the problem. But I think that's probably true in other settings as well. Here is the contract they entered into. Here's the purpose of it. So it's a little bit of storytelling as well. And that's actually an effective um, readability strategy. People like a story. Um, sometimes there isn't really a story. Uh, it's it's pretty brass tacks, but um, try mm. to tell one if you can. Yeah. So should we tap into our inner um, Lord Denning? Um, <laughs> Lord Denning, interesting. Uh, the the wonderful thing about Lord Denning is within paragraph one, you know exactly what the facts are, and you know exactly what Lord Denning thinks about them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's great, and his language is plain, clear, effective, often highly loaded in judgment, but you know, that's his job. Uh, so that's kind of the good side of Lord Denning. Um, the, the bad side of Lord Denning is he was frequently wrong. Or <laughs> yeah. frequently 
overruled. Um, and I don't think I would recommend trying to write a kind of pastiche Lord Denning in your memo. Um, it Nobody can quite pull that off, nor should you. But aim for Denning-esque uh, short sentences, for example, and vivid descriptions. Uh, that's good. I like mm -hmm. that. And one thing you said about uh, Lord Denning is you know right from the get-go what he thinks. Um, and so that brings in an element of persuasion. And I'm wondering what the role of persuasion is in a legal memo. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely an element of persuasion, especially if you're writing on a litigation matter because you're trying, probably trying to build an argument. And sometimes the argument, sometimes the whole point of the memo is we need to develop a case here. So that's definitely an exercise in persuasion. Uh, mm -hmm. You also want to persuade the reader that you've grasped the facts and the issues. So there's a, a, a kind of reader persuasion element to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess credibility too. Yep. Um, yeah. And can they, can they trust what you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's one reason I tell students, you may have to restate the obvious. Um, you're writing the memo for a senior partner and you think, oh, well, the, the partner understands all of this stuff. I don't need to explain this issue in quite so much detail because, you know, this person knows all this stuff. You should explain it because you need to show to that person that you understand it and that you've explained it clearly and accurately. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. can also be a certain amount of the assigning lawyer doesn't know this and you have to, in a polite way, explain to them the way things are. I've written memos when I was a, a research lawyer where I really had to tell people uh, that theory you had, uh, here's why it's wrong. <laughs> and that's, that can be a bit awkward, but you know, sometimes you have to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that's part of being a lawyer is breaking the bad news to people or right. at, at least telling them what the pros and cons of things are. So there's a certain risk analysis there. Mm -hmm. And then backing it all up. Yeah. 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 So sorry, we we're jumped ahead. I got so excited talking about Lord Denning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we've got our facts and then next comes usually the issue section, right? Yeah. And my advice on this one is keep it as brief as possible. Ideally, frame the issues simply and concisely as questions, because then in the next section, which I think is critical, your brief conclusions, you can answer them equally briefly, sometimes just even with the words yes and no, but sometimes with a little more. You don't want to go into a lot of depth in the brief conclusions part, I've also skipped ahead, but enough to give the reader a meaningful answer. Um, so the other thing about the issues is you need to think about what their relationship to each other is. Uh, they may be conceptually distinct, um, in which case deal with the important one first and the less important one second. Uh, they may relate to each other conceptually, so you have to figure out what the best way of presenting them as a sequence is, because as I alluded to earlier, what you say about issue A may depend on what you've said about issue D, or you may in fact have a kind of decision tree where it's kind of 
if this, then that, but if on the other hand, that, then this. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to think about how everything relates to each other. Right, right. And what is the difference between a question and a legal issue? Because oftentimes a lawyer will just ask, uh, uh, sorry, say a supervising lawyer or a senior lawyer would ask a junior lawyer to write a memo um, to help answer a question. But is that always the legal issue as you've described it, or is there a difference? Um, it depends on the question that you've been asked, because sometimes the lawyer who's assigning you the work will just say, tell me what the law of drainage to use an example we were talking about earlier before the recording, tell me about, give me an overview of the law of drainage, in which case it, you're not really going to pose that as a question. That would be more in the kind of, you have asked me to provide a sort of thing. But typically it's going to be something like, does our client require a business license to do X? So you, you can frame it as a question. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a question. Sometimes it, might be more of a statement than a question, but I just, I find questions are a good way to frame it. They're also a good way to get you thinking because you're asking yourself the same question. Uh, mm -hmm. And for the reader, it's what they're asking typically. The client is saying, do I need a business license? Mm -hmm. And I imagine that question would break down into a number of legal questions depending on what the law says yeah and you may have yeah. you may have sub issues uh and that's when things get complicated but that's to go back to my point about uh structure that's when things like um headings and subheadings become useful because they can kind of corral the thinking on sub issues but also on issues that have answers that might go one or one or more ways Mm -hmm. Definitely what, for doing something really long in a memo and really long for a memo, I think is more than kind of 10 pages. You might think about doing a table of contents. Ah, oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that gives the, the reader something visual to sort of say, oh, here's the structure. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, you know, sort of picking up on a point you said earlier, it would help the writer as well. Totally. Yeah. 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 So let's jump to the the discussion or the analysis section. Well, I guess that's probably my first question. I see sometimes it called discussion, sometimes called analysis, sometimes called discussion and analysis, analysis and discussion. Doesn't matter. Not, not at all. <laughs> okay. Just as long as it's clear that, okay, this is where the, the heavy thinking is happening. Um, but in that section, you should make sure that it tracks the issues in order and the, the brief conclusions in order because you want everything to match up. Um, the more you repeat the sequence of everything, the more it reinforces in the reader's brain. Um, I tell students, you're not writing a mystery novel, you're not writing a thriller. You don't want the reader, you know, just saying halfway through the memo, this is so exciting, I have no idea where it's going. It's, you know, how will it end? You want to tell the reader right at the beginning what the answer is, and then explain to the reader how you got there. Um, mm -hmm. So in the discussion section, start with your answer. Or if it's the kind of overview of the law of drainage kind of question, start with the, the general statement and then 
work through the explanation and the specifics. It's um, something that journalists call, and judges actually, uh, point first writing. So start right. with start with the main point, and then the explanation and the specific stuff follows. Mm -hmm. It's much more effective, I think. Yeah, and then in that, like, and what would you include in the explanation? Well, that's a bit like how long is a memo, and my answer is <laughs> how long is a piece of string. Um, you include what you need to, um, but ideally, it's a statement. You know, a, a typical one would be the leading case in Canada on this issue is X, which states this. There are exceptions, or here is the test that is set out in, in X. Here's where the cases have disagreed with the leading case, or where you know there's room for doubt. Sort of get into the more specific stuff later. Mm hmm. And then, how about the you know what what we teach in law school, the actual legal analysis, applying the law to the facts. Like how how would you suggest organizing that? Um, the the point that I always reiterate is make sure you actually analyze the law. So mm -hmm. don't just give me a statement of a legal principle and a case reference. That is not helpful. Show me what happened in that case and why it led the judge to reach the conclusion that she or he did reach, but then say, and here's how that applies to our facts, because our facts might be identical or they might be a little different, in which case maybe the answer isn't quite the same, or they may end up being quite different, in which case the leading case, while the leading case isn't really the one that we should hang our hats on because it's not entirely appropriate. It's not applicable. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. engage the analysis part should engage not only with the, the not only with telling me what research you've done, but showing me why that research is relevant and how you've thought about it in terms of what the client's actual situation is or, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I imagine, you know, trying to kind of create that logical progression, not just, okay, here's this issue and these are the cases I looked at and that's how they apply, like to kind of create a path, I guess, um, to lead the reader through the analysis, because having just these separate parts um, might not, like, might not be super accessible, or it might not be the easiest way for somebody who is not as familiar with the issues as you are after you've been working with them for so long and preparing the memo. Uh, there might be, yeah, like how do you, how do you create that kind of logical flow? Well, it goes back to the point that you made about persuasion. You, you've got to persuade the reader that you are taking them through the law and saying, here's why this, this is how it affects you and your situation. Um, so it, again, it's a bit of storytelling and a bit of rhetorical. Um, it's a rhetorical exercise uh, in showing your reader that you've reached the correct conclusion based not only on your knowledge of what the law is in the abstract, but what your understanding of the law is in context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, con and context is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And something else that um, I know that students struggle with is 
coming to those conclusions because they feel they have to be certain. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you've experienced that or, or students have mentioned that to you. I've seen a variety of things. One thing I often have seen is the student will throw a whole bunch of stuff in the memo in the hopes that the person who's reading it, who knows more, will see what the answer is. It's the throwing <laughs> mud against the wall theory of memo writing. Somewhere in there, the answer is there. And a smarter person than I am will see that, um, which is not helpful. Uh, the other side of that is being overly certain about things. You have to be cautious and you have to think of the counter arguments, uh, but also assess the weak points in your own um, in your own case. So if there's any kind of doubt in the case law or if there's a, an opposing line of cases or a strong dissent, you know, that kind of thing, you need to build that into the analysis because it's no good saying, here's what the leading case says and leaving it at that. You've got to then say, but here's how the others, you know, the other party in litigation or the counterparty in a transaction would argue the opposite conclusion. So you've got to anticipate that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you need to, you need to acknowledge the weak spots in your own uh, case. Right, right. And of course, you can't guarantee anything because ultimately, it's up to the court to decide. So you can only say, well, this is what the courts have said to date on this point. Um, who really knows how they're going to decide, but it's more likely than not that they're going to go this way or that way. Yeah, or or based on our understanding of the cases or based on our experience of how these cases go or based on our experience with this particular judge even. Um, what I find very odd is um, American memos that say, we think you have a 45% chance of success. Mm -hmm. um, be, I mean, based on what? I don't know. Uh, because there are all kinds of extraneous factors that you really can't um, put a number on. You know, is, is the, will the judge find a witness credible? Um, I don't think you can predict that one. Uh, what did the judge have for breakfast even? Um, so there are all kinds of extraneous things. And also, you know, you have to give the client a sense of the, the sort of the equities of the thing. If you're acting for a big corporation and the other side is an elderly widow, she may have none of the law on her side, but that may not matter. Um, you know, do you really want to be suing a little old lady for defaulting on some minor debt? Hmm. The answer is you might not. Um, so you may have all the legal analysis on your side, but it might just not be the case to, to make. So there are all kinds of factors like that that you should also think about informing the client of. If you're dealing with sophisticated, sophisticated clients, they'll understand that. But sometimes mm -hmm. you, you just have to say, well, yeah, the cases say that, but you just, you don't want to be making that argument. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It makes really good sense. Um, yeah, I just wonder, I mean, we've gone through all the main, I think we've gone through all the main sections of uh, of the memo. And I, I'm wondering if there's uh, sort of anything else we didn't touch on, if there are any particular challenges that, um, you know, you have noticed that uh, 
younger junior lawyers sort of um, try to grapple with when they're first starting to write memos. One final point on the discussion section, don't let it trail off into nothing. Wrap up the conclusions at the end so that your your the end of your memo brings the reader back to the beginning and sort of ties it all up. Don't just let it trail off with discussion of issue 7B and leave it at that. Go back and recap issues one through 7B. Particular challenges, uh, getting started, Hmm. Uh, thinking you need to write like a lawyer, don't. Uh, <laughs> editing and proofreading, no one ever does it enough. Yeah. Um, what else? Time pressure, that's a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And often there's nothing you can do about it. You know, the, the greatest experience I had as a research lawyer was someone saying, spend as much time as you need and spare no expense. This file <laughs> is worth billions. And I thought, okay, great. Uh, hmm. But you know, in normal life, you don't have that luxury. Um, sometimes you do. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And just on that um, point of getting started, what do you mean by that's a challenge? Like just that blank page procrastination or what uh, What types of challenges? Um, all, all, of the, to? all of those. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. um, every writer faces writer's block. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a huge one. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that you've got a deadline that is unmanageably short is also a huge problem. And actually, I think, makes it harder to write the memo because, you you know, I've got to come up with an answer by noon and it's 10 o'clock. Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh, so that's a big one. Yeah. But like you were saying at the beginning, just to sort of be honest and say, you know, this is what you did the best you could in the time you had, like not exactly in those words, but that's the idea. Yeah, I wouldn't um, choose those words exactly. But. Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, just that peace of mind that, you know, because I think there's a lot of um, sort of the, there's the psychology, or the psychological element that factors into our ability to uh, to create and to come up you know, with conclusions and analyze a problem when we're feeling so constrained and restricted. It's always um, helpful to talk to other people, especially to more senior people who may have come across the particular issue before, who may know the client, who may have some background. That's always helpful. Um, or talk to people if you have questions about what the law is. I mean, a lot of the, the time I spend with students is explaining to them the things that they haven't taken at law school or pointing them towards resources that they should look at. You know, this text is good, that one's not so great. Um, or this is what the lawyer meant when she said this. Um, so talking to other people is always good. And look around in the memo database to see if somebody else has written about it because that can, right. save, you a, that can save you a huge amount of time. When I um, was a research lawyer, I got a call from someone in a boardroom who said, the client has been asked a question and we need the answer now. Hmm. And I talked to the woman who ran the internal database and she said, oh, I think we have a memo in the system on that. And it turned out it was a memo on the same issue for the same client <laughs> um, three years earlier. And she was able to send it to me by email. I printed it off quickly checked to make sure that the cases that were referred to, it was quite a narrow issue, so there weren't many, were still okay. And boom, there was your answer. Um, so try not to reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Clients don't want us to, 
don't want to pay for us to have to do it. And it's also not a good use of, of the writer of the memo's time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great. what a great example. Um, yeah. And what fantastic tips and advice uh, and in- insights, Neil, that uh, you've shared with us. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to That's speak with fun. us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knew that talking about memo writing could be so exciting and so fun? Um, well, I don't know but- if your, your listeners will think that, but I hope so. <laughs> well, you and I do, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be more of us out there. Um, but uh, I just wanted to check in with you and, and see what's next for you. I know, um, you know, you've you've written a few books and wondering if maybe you've got a new book on the horizon. Oh, did I mention my book? Um, no. I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, the second edition of my book on legal writing, Guthrie's Guide to Better Legal Writing, is uh, going to be published on the 7th of April uh, from Irwin Law. Uh, and that's very exciting. Uh, and uh, after that, I'm not sure. Well, I'm, I not, would say I'm that... not going to retire on the royalties from the book. <laughs> but what's different between the first and the second edition? Uh, the second is just, um, I, I revised some of the earlier material, but it's also uh, considerably bigger. Um, it just kind of, it like the first book, it grew from weekly blog posts. So it kind of happened without me realizing that I had written a book. And now I've written, I don't call it a second book. It's more like a book and a half. So I've mm-hmm. written... 2.5 books. Um, but it just sort of happened over time. And I spend a lot of my, you know, leisure hours just looking for examples of bad legal writing, and I write about them. Um, so in a way, I don't want lawyers to be better writers, because then I'm out of a, out of a job. <laughs> but um, I wish they would be better writers. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. I look forward to reading the second edition because the, the first edition is sitting right beside me um, oh, as we speak. Yeah, so I, I'll definitely be one of the first to, uh, to get a hold of the second edition. So, so super. So thank you again, Neil. Wonderful speaking with you. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that lots of law students, summer students, junior lawyers, and even more seasoned, seasoned lawyers will listen to this because uh, there are a lot of great gems in here. The seasoned lawyers need it the most. They're the worst. (laughs) Glad you said that. Thanks again, Neil. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at XLLegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L dot com.